Thank you so much for the way that you have worshipped today. Thank you for being here with us and for sharing in this time. Uh, those of you that, again, are new to East Brainerd, if you just dropped off your little guys in the back, uh, don't worry, they will be available for you to carry home. I mean, we like having them, but we also like it when you take them home. And so after Bible class time, you can be able to retrieve them and, and ask them about what they have been discussing, not only in kids' praise and we worship, but also uh, during their Bible study time. We have a great curriculum called the Gospel Project that our children's ministry is utilizing, and we want you to be a part of that with your children. So don't just take them and leave them and never um, ask what's taking place. Make sure that you have conversation with them on the drive home. And I'm sure they're going to be able uh, to share some uh, really amazing things that they are going to be learning uh, today. Uh, for you guys that don't get to go to Kids Praise and We Worship, I'm sorry. By the way, uh, anybody um, disappointed you don't get to go to Kids Praise and We Worship? I mean, yes, I, I see some, some of the teens raising their hand. I remember when uh, my son reached the age where he was no longer at that that place where he could go to kids praise and we worship anymore and I remember one time we were getting ready for church and he was like hey do I get to go to kids praise today and I was like well no remember you've already gotten to that place where you know the age that uh, you're too you're too old now and he says you mean I gotta sit and listen to you <laughs> so for all of you that have to sit and listen to me sorry about that but I'm glad you're here I'm glad that you're here today and glad that we're going to be able to go through this study together life on mission. We kicked it off last week and we looked at we looked at the mission that God's people are supposed to be about and how it should be consuming their lives. And we talked about the idea how we need to be connecting with others who are not disciples of Jesus Christ. And remember we said that it's kind of hard to connect with people when you're not around people. When you, if you spend all of your time around disciples, it's hard to go out and and make disciples. And so we encourage one another to expand our spheres of influence and to be able to take some chances and to be able to step out on faith and, and, and to speak the name of Jesus, maybe in ways that we haven't done that before. And I appreciate uh, over the week, I've had a number of you who have reached out to me in different ways and, and you have uh, given some positive remarks as to the, the lesson last week. And, uh, you know, whenever you hear that as a minister, you start, you know, you feel really good and and then I had somebody remind me that it might just be because I, um, I said that Jesus went to naughty people parties. And everybody was like, yeah, all right. Wings at Hooters. We can do that. But no. Um, it, when we go through this study and when we look to see how, how Jesus is living his life, we cannot help to be challenged. We cannot help, hopefully, to be changed. And hopefully, as we live out this mission, we are going to look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to kick things off uh, this morning by uh, initially referencing an article that was in the Times Free Press here in Chattanooga uh, back just a few months ago. This is Sunday, March 13th, 2016. Uh, there was an article that was called When Helping Heals. And it dealt with the uh, acceptance or the rejection, the impact of what would be called the social gospel in Chattanooga. And it looked at how churches were impacting the Chattanooga community and in ways such as caring for the less fortunate and reaching out to those who were in dire situations and in feeding the poor and in clothing those who were homeless and things of that nature. And it looked at the impact that had been had by the ministries of the area churches and then talked about just the feeling of that 
kind of work in general throughout our society. I just want to read a few things that were listed here in this particular article. Again, if you'd like to Google it, you can find it at Sunday, March 13, 2016, when Helping Hills out of the Times Free Press. One thing that was mentioned, it says, Among the growing number of skeptics in America, George Barna, who does a lot of research, many of you have, have read his work before, Barna found that the majority thought church members weren't connected to one another in life-changing ways, did little to add any value to their communities, and were led by people who didn't show love for one another. Now, as they're going through this article, they are, they are talking with a gentleman who wrote a book that's called When Helping Hurts. Maybe some of you have read it. Our missions team went through this particular study in preparation of, uh, of their own work here within our congregation and outside the walls. And so they talked to the author of this particular book and and he says that when he began to study the impact that churches made in society, specifically in the United States, he realized, it said, that evangelical Christians had once been beacons of hope in their communities and championed the fight for the poor, believing it was at the heart of the salvation message. Goes on to say, before the 20th century, evangelicals were on the front lines fighting to improve working conditions for industrial workers. Also, they created orphanages, they set up schools for immigrants, fought for laws to end child labor, and founded rescue organizations such as the Salvation Army. However, in the 1920s, disagreement over salvation caused the predecessors of modern evangelical Christianity to shrink from helping the poor out of fear that the social gospel, which focused on helping the poor but not necessarily their need for salvation, would spread. And so what you have happening here, when you look back over our history, you see individuals who were disciples, who were on that walk with God, learning what it meant to, to do life with Jesus Christ. And you see them highly involved in the communities that they lived in for the betterment of those communities. And yet it reached a tipping point around the 1920s when all of a sudden people began to asking, they said, wait a minute. Is it okay to go and help the poor and to feed them and yet not convert them to Christianity? What is our purpose and what should we be doing? And what ended up developing was this mindset that said you can either be for evangelism or you can be for social justice, but you cannot be for both. It's one or the other. And so you began to look then at the history of the effect and impact of Christianity in the United States from there, the early part of that 20th century up until now. And you see a movement of Christians away from the community, getting closer and closer to one another in their churches, but farther and farther away from the people that are in most need of the message of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what is it? Is it social justice or is it evangelism? What should we be, what should we be about? Well, let me give you a little bit more background. That kind of sets you up for kind of what's going on across the Christian spectrum, all right? But let's just talk about within our fellowship here. If you have grown up in the churches of Christ, if you have 
been a part of this fellowship for uh, any number of time, you've perhaps heard of our history some and our, our past. And you've heard about how that in the early 1800s there were uh, gentlemen such as Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell and the work that they did encouraging individuals to turn back to the scriptures and to do Bible things in Bible ways. And it is through their teaching, through a lot of their writings, that who we are today as a fellowship, we are, their, their thoughts and their, their principles are imprinted upon our fellowship. And so who we are a lot today is because of those two individuals and their understanding of Christian theology and faith. So let me just give you a little bit of our background to kind of let you see where we're coming from in this particular idea of, is it evangelism or is it service? Is it social justice or is it conversion? Which one should we, should we be about? Alexander Campbell, when he looked at the reading of Scripture, he presumed that the unity of the Christian faith could come if everybody would just read the Bible in the same way. If everybody would read the Bible the same, you wouldn't have different types of religious groups on all the different corners because everybody would be one and the same. He believed that reading the Bible based on the assumption of Scottish common sense realism, it's like, what in the world is that? Think scientific method, all right, that you learned in the school and that you continue to maybe discover as you go through your science class. He believed the Bible was to be viewed as a manual for church and Christian life, that you open up the Bible, that you go to it, that you look, that you discover, and then that you live out. And he believed that the essentials or the matters of faith were those issues to which the text provided precise and unmistakable direction. If the Bible said it, then that was to settle it, and that was to be the end, and that was to be the things that we did. Campbell regulated to the category of opinion all issues of social justice. He said that when it came to the impact that we were to have in our communities, that was left up to each individual Christian or each individual congregation because he believed there might be inferences drawn from broad biblical principles to the idea. But since in his determination there lacked any precise, thus saith the Lord on the subject, it was not central to the gospel. Now how does this end up then playing out in his own life and then also affecting those who would follow after him in churches that bore his influence. Well, in 1845, he said this of slavery. There is not one verse in the Bible inhibiting it, but many regulating it. It is not, then, we conclude, immoral. In fact, he suggested, in certain cases and conditions, slavery might be morally right. And that should shock you to hear something like that. But Campbell's view of Scripture was that if the Bible did not talk about it specifically and say, yes, you could do it, or, or no, you can't, then it was left in the realm of opinion, and you were to, to work that out on your, on your own. He also viewed there to be what is called the canon within the canon. The canon being not those uh, big things that you see that shoot cannonballs all around our, um, uh, our mountains and hills around here in Chattanooga. But the canon being that, that grouping of scriptures that come together to form our, our Bible. And Campbell insisted that the essentials of the Christian faith were found in the New Testament, not in the Old. And that the New Testament alone contained the laws and regulations that should govern God's people, the church. 
And he argued that only the portion of the New Testament which actually reflected the Christian age was actually pertinent in that regard. And so this means that he restricted the canon to Acts 2 through Revelation 22, downplaying the biblical text from the Old Testament and the Gospels that dealt directly most with the idea of social justice. So when individuals might say, well, there are passages in the Old Testament that deal with helping the poor and, and providing for needs, Campbell will say, yeah, but that's not central to the Christian faith because that's in the Old Testament. Well, what about the writings and teachings of Jesus? Well, that, that's in the Gospels and those are good, but it's not central to how the early Christians lived in Acts 2 through Revelation 22. That was the focus that he had on the text. In addition, when it came to individual conversions versus social ethics, Campbell made the issue of individual conversion paramount, focusing especially on individual obedience to the first principles, that being faith and repentance, confession and immersion, and lifestyle was not to be as important as the belief that you held. Now again, these are, these are thinkings and these are thoughts that come from the writings and the teachings of Alexander Campbell, who had great influence in the early days of, of our congregations that we now know as the Churches of Christ. There's one other thing. There's this idea of what was known as an apocalyptic paradigm. During the early days of what was known as the Stone-Campbell movement, as, as, as those who, who were influenced by the teachings of Barton W. Stone and those who were influenced by the teachings of Alexander Campbell, as, as their churches began to, to spend more time with one another, as they began to, to minister more with one another, there developed this apocalyptic paradigm specifically in the writings of Stone through which churches of Christ viewed their relationship to society and the world, and it influenced them greatly. And it was predicated on the obedience to the direct rule of God. Now, here's the difference between the two guys, though. For Campbell, this meant submitting to the ordinances and commandments. And for Stone, it meant living a transformed life. Barton Stone, along with many of his followers, lived their lives in the shadow of the second coming. And so the idea was that since Jesus is going to be returning, what manner of people should we be as we wait and as we anticipate this? Similar to, to statements that Peter would make to the early church. And the kingdom allegiance impacted greatly the ethics of the church member. Now Stone downplayed material concerns and oriented his life toward ethical interests. And he called on his followers to open their lives to the Holy Spirit, to the power of the Spirit, and to abandon everything for the sake of others, and to render to those who were in need, and to stand with those who suffered. And they held that human institutions were powerless to reinnovate the world unless God were a part of it. And the primary difference then between Stone and Campbell lay in what the two men found in Scripture. Campbell primarily found models for worship and organization of the church, whereas Stone primarily found models for holy living. Both believed that Christians should be separate. Both believed that there should be identifying markers of the church. One is separate from the world. One is separate from other religious institutions. And then throughout the 19th century, some in the churches of Christ began to try to reconcile the Stoneite and the Campbellite view of things. And when this happened, for the majority... The sectarian vision of Alexander Campbell trumped the sectarian view of Barton W. Stone, meaning that right practice began to trump right lifestyle. It is no coincidence that this change began to take place or, or this winning out of right practice over right lifestyle began to take place in the 1920s when in the greater evangelical world, similar things were taking place as individuals were saying, you know what? 
We can't just go and feed people without converting them. That is going to be our focus, and so we need to be careful in the things that we are involved in. And so here's what happened. Over time, those views as less concerned with soul saving, if you were viewed as less concerned with soul saving than with helping the downtrodden, these people smelled, it was said, of liberalism. In fact, one quote is listed as saying, entirely too much of today's radicalism is aimed in one direction only, toward the social gospel. The things that many young Christians are pulling for make good social fodder, but they are poor Bible. This was said by one of our leading ministers in 1969 as looking out across society and seeing the way that churches were trying to impact their community. So I give you that history so that I can set up where we are today with this idea of life on mission. Because we have a lot of different service ministries that take place here within our congregation. And we have things that are done and sometimes there is a guilt that is felt because it is wondered, is it okay to go and do something service-oriented without seeing any conversions coming from it? Again, is it to be evangelism or is it to be social justice? Is it to be serving others or is it to be teaching others? Because we look at ministries that we have going on here and we have coming up here in a few months, we have our, our Watts, our We Are the Sermon Sunday. And it's been a, a great ministry here for East Brainerd where on one Sunday we come together and we share communion with one another and then we go out into the community and we engage in various projects to make this community better and to help the lives of those who live around our building. It's a great thing that we are a part of. And it was something that was brought to us by some of those who were in our young adult classes that said, listen, we want to be more outside the walls and here's something that we would like to do. We have our snack pack ministry that is adding more schools this year. We're going to have, what, 10 schools this year, Ms. Janice? Isn't that right? 10 different schools that we are going to be helping provide snacks or meals that these children can take home on the weekends, many of them not having proper food at home over the weekends when they're not getting the meals that they're furnished at school. And so because of our efforts, there's going to be um, students in 10 different schools across our community who are going to be going home with food each and every weekend once school now has started back. You think about the um, Want To Foundation that uh, Gary Highfield has, has built from, from scratch, looking at what is taking place within our schools and looking at how so many young men and young women are not filled with value and feel like that there's no hope in their life and there's no direction. And he then goes in and takes others who are professionals throughout society having speciality in different types of jobs and different types of activities and goes in and talks to these young people and says, you know what, you can be whatever it is you want to be. And you can succeed, and you can rise up above your current level of life. We've got cool coats for warm kids, or warm coats for cool kids, whichever way that's supposed to go. Where we give out coats, and that's coming up here in just a couple of months, where we've got over 300 coats that are just waiting to be given out to children who need those coats. And again, these ministries, these are things that are started by individuals who say, you know what, here's a need that I think that we can fill. And yet within that, I have talked to individuals who have been involved in these ministries and they have said, but I feel guilty because I'm not sharing the gospel. 
I feel guilty because I'm not having a Bible study with the child or I'm, I'm, not, able to, I'm not able to convert this, this, this parent. Is it evangelism? Or is it service? And my answer is yes. It's not an, it's not an either or, but instead it's a both and that we are supposed to be involved in. And there should be no guilt. There should be no uncomfortable feeling as we go and live out this life on a mission. Now, don't take my word for it. Let's go to some text and let's, let's read through um, together. Isaiah chapter 58 is going to be the first passage that we're going to look at. It's in your Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 58. God is going to be speaking to his people who are under Assyrian captivity and they have, they, they have found themselves in this situation because they have gone through years and decades of living life far from him. And so a punishment that would come is that the Israelite people would be taken over by the Assyrians. And there they are under this yoke and they are in this bondage and they're wondering when things will ever be able to change and he is going to write and, and, and speak through the prophet Isaiah. And he's going to explain, listen, I see what you're doing. I see the different religious activities that you're going through. But there's still something that is lacking. He says in Isaiah 58, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud and don't be tempted. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. Do you get the picture? They're going through these motions, and it looks like they're doing everything that they should be doing. They're in the temple, and they're offering sacrifices, and they're praying, and they're going to be fasting. As if they want to be, God says, as if they want to be near me, as if they really want to listen to the things that I say. Yet he continues. He says about them, here's what you say. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves. You don't even notice it. He says, I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? Like, but we're going to church and we're reading our Bibles and we're spending time with other God believers and we're doing those things that you laid out, those commandments that you told us to do. And yet God says, I'm seeing through it. Verse 6, no, this is the kind of fasting that I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward, and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. He says, I see all the motions that you're going through. 
says, but it's not just about bowing your head. It's not just about praying. It's not just about going to church. It's not just about following religious commandments. He says there is a godliness to your life that needs to be evident in the way that you're treating other people. In the way that you're living your lives among these Assyrians. In the way that you're living your lives among these other Israelites. He says you're fasting but you're quarreling and you're fighting. Because these things just don't go together. You're not living the life that you should be living. And you cannot get away as you read through this because you begin to realize that God's blessings and God's ear is only going to be attentive to his people to the extent that they are involved in doing something good in the lives of other people. So it's not about your religious activities. It's not about your different procedures that you go through. It's about how you are living among the people that are around you. And so he says, verse 9, Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. He says, if you really want freedom, if you really want to to, to break your own chains, then help somebody else get out of theirs. If you really want to be quenched with with life-saving water, then go give some water to somebody else. If you want to be filled spiritually, then go fill the belly of somebody else who is hungry. This was the direction that he gave to, to his people during what we known as the, the Old Covenant, as it's written here in what we call our Old Testament. God's specific people, his, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, those that he had called to be his nation. This was the direction that he gave to them. You say, well, what about us? Is it just like Campbell said, that was for them and their time and, their, and there's nothing for us? Well, turn over into your New Testament. Turn to the Gospels. Let's start in, let's start in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is where Jesus begins his ministry. And he's going to end up pulling from the same same writer that we just read from, from the very same message, the message of Isaiah. And he's going to pull from this and he's going to say, listen, God's, God's kingdom is present. And God's people are supposed to rejoice because of it. And there's a certain way that life is supposed to be lived. And he stands up to read the scripture. And it says, you can read in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. He reads where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. And at the time of the Lord's favor time of the Lord's favor has come. And he's reading from Isaiah 61. Just three chapters over from where we just got finished reading. There's this continuation where God says to his people who are in activity, this is the way that you're supposed to live. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, this is going to be my mission. This is what I am going to be about. This is what I am going to encourage others to be about. You flip on over to a passage in Matthew chapter 25 well-known section of Scripture. 
where Jesus paints this picture of the final judgment. And he says that there's going to be this, this separation that's going to take place. And the separation that's going to take place, it, surprisingly, as you read through it, it's not going to be based on who believes in Jesus and who doesn't believe in Jesus. But he says the separation is going to be made based on how we treated those who are around us. Look at verse 33. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And the king will say to those at his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when do we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and gave you clothing? When do we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. And then he looks at the other group and he goes to this same wording and he says, listen, I want you to get away from me. And they're like, why? When did we not see you and do something for you? And he says, every time that you have the opportunity to give out a coat, every time you have an opportunity to give a meal, every time you had an opportunity to lift somebody up from where they were living in their life and you did not do it, you walked right by me. And he says, depart from me. Depart from me. We read this particular passage, and we, let's just be honest, we struggle with this one sometimes. And I found one author who says, oftentimes we live more like this particular paraphrase. For I, for I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick. And you point out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison. And you said I was getting what I deserved. Can we not be just a little bit honest with ourselves and say that at some point in time we have all perhaps lived in that paraphrase? That we've lived more in that paraphrase than we've actually lived in the words of Jesus. See, the good news of God's ongoing regeneration needs to be shared in every way possible. Jesus' theology was focused on the kingdom of God, the idea that God's rule was going to be present in the life of his people. And when God's people are living after God's will, he says it looks a certain way. And certain things take place. And there's a certain ethic, there's a kingdom ethic that individuals were to live by. You go on into Acts and you see in chapter 2 where there with those early disciples, they are living out the kingdom ethic of Jesus. And it continues on. And according to Ephesians, God's eternal vision is for his creation to exist in community without the barriers of race and power or social standing, all due to the oneness that was brought about through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And for all of us, as we're looking and as we're struggling and trying to think as a disciple on this walk, what are we supposed to be about? Is it evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Or is it somehow helping to improve our society? We need to ask ourselves, when God is finished with what he is doing in the world, will I have been a part of it? Will I have been a part of it? Have I been leaning into the things that God is already doing in our midst? 
John the Baptist sent a message to Jesus during his ministry, wondering if Jesus truly was the Messiah, wondering if Jesus truly was the one that had been prophesied. And at that particular time, it says in Luke chapter 7, there around verse 20, it says that Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And so he told the messengers who had come from John, he said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. When John the Baptist wondered, Jesus, are you the one that we should look for, or is there another? He did not send the messengers back with a belief system and with certain things they needed to do and certain ways they needed to, to, to conduct themselves. Instead, he said, listen, here is what I am doing. Here is what's taking place. Here are the people that I'm touching. Here are the people that have a new life. You go tell John that the Messiah is here. And the Messiah is here because of tangible acts of God working in this world. See, Jesus encouraged John by pointing to the tangible evidence of God's kingdom. And if we're to be a part of that kingdom, then God expects our lives, our churches, and our faith communities to be characterized by these authentic signs of our own transformation. There's got to be compassion. And there's got to be mercy. And there has to be justice. And there has to be love. And these things have to be demonstrated tangibly. Because only then will light be able to break through throughout the darkness. Because the world doesn't care how we worship in here. The world doesn't care the Bible that you read. The world just cares if you care for them. If you care for them. Was there anything else in here that speaks to this particular subject? Let's look at one more passage. Um, Go to Titus. This is in your New Testament, writings of the Apostle Paul. So we've seen how that in Old Testament passages, God's people were were to be about others, and they were to be about serving, and they were to be about having impact in the lives of those who were downtrodden, in the lives of those who needed it the most. We see now Jesus said, this is my mission. This is why I have come. How he told John the Baptist, listen, here's proof of who I am because people's lives are being changed. And we've seen how Jesus has said, listen, there's going to come a time where there's going to be a separation and it's going to be based on how you treated those who are around you. Let's see Paul's message to the church. He writes to Titus, Titus chapter 3. He says in verse 4, But when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. And because of His grace, He declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we may inherit eternal life. And He says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to, listen to this, insist, On these teachings. Do you understand what he's telling the church? He's saying, listen, you have been saved by the goodness of Jesus Christ. By the mercy that was poured out by God. Now I want you to insist on letting everybody know that there is grace. And there's grace. And there's grace through Jesus Christ. He says, here's why I want you to do it. He says, here's why I want it. I want you to be over here. Evangelism. Grace. 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 He says, here's why. Keep reading. So that all who trust in God 
will devote themselves to good works. The word there means beautiful deeds. He says, I want you to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ and let people know that there is salvation found in only one name. And I want you to go and do it so that once they hear it, they will go out and they will do beautiful things. And they will take what Satan has scarred and made ugly in this world and that they will be able to transform it into something that is truly beautiful. Skip on down again, same chapter, look at verse 14. It says our people must learn. And the word that's used there, it says it's something that has to be done over and over so a habit can be developed. Our people must learn to do good by meeting, it says, the urgent needs of others. Some translations say the essential needs of others. It's a habit that has to be formed. It's something that takes place not just once a year during Watts. It's not just one coat giveaway, but it's something that's going on daily in the lives of those who are following Jesus Christ. That they're going out and sharing and saying, you know what, how would you like to do life Jesus' way? How would you like to consider doing things the way that Christ taught? How would you like to have a new beginning? How would you like to be transformed into something that is truly unique so that in turn you can go and help somebody else's life be transformed? How would you like that? That's the mission that we have been called to. But it takes practice and it goes on and on as we recognize the urgent essential needs of those who are around us. And let me tell you, there are some urgent needs. There are children in our community who go hungry, not just on the weekends, but during the week. And they need to be fed. There are children who are going to school and they are having to get themselves up, trying to feed themselves, clothe themselves, get their own transportation to school because they have no family that lives with them. And yet... They're trying to do the best that they can to make a life for themselves. And they need mentors who will step into their life and say, you know what? You can be different. You can rise up above this. You can achieve. You can succeed. There are individuals who are cold. There are individuals who are in need of all types of assistance. And whose responsibility is it to see that those needs are met. It's not the city of Chattanooga. It's the church. It's God's people. Because when grace is stressed in the church, people get blessed by the church. And notice what it says at the very end of this chapter, at this text. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be, it says, maybe in your Bible, unfruitful. Others say unproductive. It's a metaphorical word here that means that you're, you're going to be yielding what you should be yielding. He says, listen, if you go out and you live this way and if you do these things, it will keep you, it will keep you from becoming a person who's not bearing fruit. He says, there's a certain way that we're supposed to live our lives. There's a certain type of person that we're supposed to be. And if we are not engaged in the essential needs of others, then we are not being that person. We're not doing what we are called to do. You see, as we share the kingdom message, we cannot neglect to live out the kingdom ethic. It is not an either or. Instead, it is a both and. As they both lean in to one another. I've told you before, and we'll close with this. 
how that in 1917, when Russia was in the midst of helping to fight World War I, they had their own society crumbling, and there was a revolt that would take place, a communist uprising. Russia would become a, a communist country. And it surprises me to learn that in the, the communist constitution there that the Russians had in 1917, religion was not illegal. It wasn't. It was not illegal to be a Christian. It was not illegal to go to church. It was not illegal to be a follower of Christ. But here's what was illegal. The church was forbidden from helping the community around them. Because that was going to be the responsibility of the state. And so they were going to take care of the poor. The state was going to take care of the needy. The state was going to take care of those who were, who were old. The state was going to take care of those who were sick. And by the time communist rule fell in what we know now as the old Soviet Union, the churches there were obsolete. They could still meet. They could still sing. They could still read their Bibles. But they couldn't help the people. And because of that, church after church after church, Christian after Christian, began to disappear from the landscape. So, what do we do with this? When you can share, share. And when you can serve, serve. And don't feel guilty when while doing one, you might not have the opportunity to do the other. Sometimes one will lead to the other. Sometimes through your service, you might be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in sharing the good news of Jesus, you might have the opportunity then to serve. But they oftentimes, sometimes don't always go together for whatever reason that it might be. You know, as a church congregation, we have the ability to be able to join the, together and pool resources and, and pool time and talents so that we can do acts of service as a whole that individually we are not able to do together. And what we find right now, at least in our society and in our culture, we can be more effective as a whole serving than perhaps as a whole sharing. But yet what we're also finding in our culture right now is that we are more effective in our culture sharing individually. Yeah. See, it's not a do we share the gospel, do we serve other people? It's not that. In your individual life, yes, you need to share when you can share, you need to serve when you can serve. But understand that right now, you'll have the best impact, we can have the greatest impact if individually we realize that, listen, it is my responsibility to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are around me, with those who I am communicating with. And we also need to realize that we have a great advantage here within our size of our congregation to be able to do service projects and ministries of great scope and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. We're not seeking balance. Where it's like, okay, how many outreach events do we have versus how many service events do we have? It's not balance that we are seeking. It's just consistency. When we can share, we will share. When we can serve, we will 
serve. It is not an either or, but it is a both and. And so if you've ever been led to feel guilty because of the service that you gave, I'm sorry for that. If you've ever been led to feel guilty because you were packing up lunches and you thought, you know what, I'm never going to be able to share the message with this child who's going to get it. I'm not going to be able to really truly teach them about Jesus. And you thought, maybe I need to stop doing this. If you've ever been in that point where you're just like, you know, all I can do right now is, all I can do right now is, is go on a mission trip and I'm, I'm, I'm painting a church building or I'm, I'm helping out with a vacation Bible school and I, I just don't feel like I'm really getting into the lives of people. I don't know if I'm really doing. Don't feel guilty when you do something that's good. Don't feel guilty when you're following in the footsteps of Jesus and you're doing the things that Jesus called you to do. We're going to sing a song to encourage one another. And I want this to be a time where you were encouraged to live out the life of discipleship that God has called you to. To connect with those who are around you and to serve those whom you connect with. And to do so with a spirit that is filled with energy and that is filled with an excitement where there is no guilt, where there is no apprehension. But you know that you are living out the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, your light shines and God is glorified. And isn't that what the church is to be about? Let's stand and give him praise.